this morning we're going to see a story that's going to cause us to really question how much we want to trust in our sovereign God. The title of the sermon is Just How Sovereign Is God? Just how sovereign is he? Is there limits to his sovereignty? The Bible answers the big questions of life, no doubt. But perhaps most importantly, um, the big question, who is God? That's what the Bible reveals to us. Who is God? We, we can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. We can know something about God by looking at creation, Paul tells us in Romans 1. But you can't know God unless he decides to reveal himself to us. And he has, through his word, through creation, and, as the book of Hebrews says, through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we have this revelation of God, and now the conundrum is, do we like the revelation that we've gotten? Now, it shouldn't be a question, but we're being honest this morning. This is what we do. We evaluate, we judge, we decide if we like, if we don't like. We don't even put much thought into it anymore because they, they have a little thumbs up, thumbs down on Facebook now. Like, dislike, like, dislike, like. Oh, I liked it, but now I dislike it. Go back and change. And then I've got 108 likes, so I'm a good person and people like me. And that's what we do. And we do it all the time. And we go to movies and then we go afterwards for a soda and we critique the movie, say, I like it, didn't like it, could have been better. I would have done this differently. And we do it with books. And we have book clubs. And we read books together. And we critique the book. And shame on us. We secretly critique one another all the time. You know you're doing it to me right now. But don't worry. I'm returning the favor. And in a noble sense, this is part of being made in the image of God. As God has built us with the capacity to discern, to judge. But our sin nature has tainted and perverted that gift from God, and it's uh, criticism on steroids, right? All day long, judging, judging, judging. And Jesus said in his sermon, judge not lest ye be judged. Do you judge in the way you would want to be judged. Be merciful. Be gracious. You need mercy. You need grace. The Bible's a story about an absolutely sovereign God, though, who has the right to do this, and he does it well without mistakes. When he judges, he judges perfectly. Yet another created being, Satan, leads mankind into rebellion. And so God institutes this rescue pl plan, bringing the perfect judge into the world to rescue us. God is the author and the hero of the story. He knows the beginning from the end, and he's providentially controlling all aspects of the story. He's not writing the script as he goes along. The script is written. We're just living it out. And yet, in some way, we're living out the script in ways that make our choices real and meaningful. We're not fatalists. We're not pre-programmed robots. We're human beings. We're moral agents. We make decisions between right and wrong, and we act on those decisions. And yet, all according to God's decrees. Not one of us can thwart God's plans. Or as one commentator said, not one molecule in the universe is rogue. Not one rogue atom. Everything obeys God's commands. And yet, like I said, we can't seem to help ourselves. Everyone's a critic. And it's horrible when we look at God and judge him and find him coming up wanting and try to recreate him into something that we would say, now that is what God should be. And so that's the issue we're going to deal with this morning. Very important issue. The Bible calls it idolatry. The 
The Bible is God's self-revelation. You wouldn't like it if you wrote your autobiography and someone came around and said, no, no, and they rewrote it for you. I don't think you're like that at all. I think I know you better than you know you. And we know we're not supposed to do this with God. It just, it happens. And so we need to know when it happens, when we're tempted to do it, why we do it, and how to repent from it. As one commentator said, um, God created man in his image, and man is returning the favor. Like a little thing that says, wait for laughter to. (laughs) Let's try that again. So, God created man in his image, and man is returning the favor. So, oh, I get it. Okay, so we're creating a God in our image. So, we now live in a culture where man wants to be absolutely sovereign. This is God's prerogative, but man wants this prerogative. And somehow he's been taught that you can be sovereign over your own little kingdom. Sovereign over morality, sovereign over truth, sovereign over gender, sovereign over sexual orientation, sovereign over marriage, sovereign even over life and death as we kill babies and the disabled when it becomes inconvenient. And one day, with advances in molecular genetics, man thinks he can be sovereign over what it means to be human. I'll just create a human just the way I want one. Or I'll create a human being with spare parts so I can live forever. Oh, you think this won't happen? It's happening right now. The advances the scientists let us know they've made are the ones that they think society's ready to hear. You can guarantee whatever you're hearing in the papers, they're five, six, seven steps ahead of what they admit they're doing. And so, we who affirm the sovereignty of God are desperately warning our fellow mankind that destruction will surely result from this folly and rebellion. And we warn and we fight back with prayer and with preaching and yes, even politics. But we must recognize that there is a battle to be fought within our own hearts. Our unredeemed flesh is still in rebellion and desperately wants its own way and wants it right now. And so we cry out for God's mercy and we strive to know and live and love the truth. And we proclaim and sing about this sovereign God. But eventually, circumstances in our lives will test the limits of our trust in God's sovereignty. Something's bound to happen in your life where the pain and the suffering and the confusion is so great that you begin to make compromises. Easy to affirm God's sovereignty when all's going well. What about in those moments where, like Job, nothing seems to make sense? What did I do to deserve this kind of suffering? Surely God must have made a mistake, though I know he doesn't make mistakes. But if only he'd give me a chance to question him. We know the God of the Bible is sovereign, but just how sovereign is he? Or, to be frank, we ask, just how sovereign do I want him to be? Any attempts to answer these questions, apart from the Bible, will ultimately lead to a God who is not really God. You can't answer these questions apart from the Bible. You've got to go to the Scriptures to answer the question about who is God and just how sovereign is he? But when it comes to personal suffering, it can become painfully difficult to affirm and embrace the sovereignty of God. We don't want to be mad at God. And we don't want to question His goodness, so we begin to make subtle theological shifts in our understanding of God. An attempt to 
let God off the hook. So he's not to blame for our suffering and our tragedy. Theologians and philosophers call this the problem of evil. It's, it's the big one, people. We won't cover it all, all of it in one sermon. It, it, you could study it for the rest of your life. It's that kind of topic. But I want to introduce it this morning. If God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? That's the problem of evil. Atheists use it as their main argument against the existence of God. Or at least the God of the Bible. By the way, the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias points out that if you talk about the problem of evil, you've already presupposed that there's a God. So it's a fallacy for atheists to say there's no God because of the problem of evil. If there's no God, then there's no such thing as evil. Everything's just random chance stuff. Stuff happens. So if you're suffering, get over it. Life is pain. And anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. If there is no God, then there's no moral lawgiver. If there's no moral lawgiver, then there's no standard of morality. If there's no absolute standard of morality, then there's no evil. And if there's no evil, then there's no problem of evil. It's all in your head. It's just the way the random universe works. But since we posit that there is a God, then the question is, how could he allow such evil? The attempt to rescue God from this theological dilemma is called a theodicy, which is not the latest minivan. It's um, a Greek word combining theos, God, with decay, righteousness, or justification. It's literally the justification of God, as if God needs justifying. But here we go. It's what the popular book, now a feature film, The Shack, is all about. Yes, folks, The Shack is back. And I'm not talking about the basketball player. Uh, that Shack has a bad back. And he's um, selling these heated pads. <laughs> and you'd think a guy who's won that many championships and has that much money wouldn't need to do schmaltzy commercials, but it's his business. I'm talking about the book, The Shack, the New York Times bestseller that Christians gobbled up in record numbers 10 years ago. It's now a feature-length film, as if it wasn't bad enough that we had to consume our heresy in print form. Now, all the non-readers can experience a literal false image of God on the giant screen. While enjoying a popcorn and a Coke, no less. The shack is a theodicy. The writer of the shack says, look, it's just fiction. I'm not really trying to do theology. No, you're doing theology. The book is about a little girl who was kidnapped and tortured and murdered in a shack in the woods and the distraught father is invited by God to go back to the shack and meet God face to face and have God explain how all this could happen and God could still be loving. So that's the problem of evil. It's a theodicy. And um, the God characters speak in the first person, which is heresy right there. You don't put words in God's mouth that aren't from the Bible. And the images of God are not the images of God we see in the Bible. It's heresy upon heresy upon heresy. But worst of all, it ends up answering the problem of evil in very unhealthy, unbiblical ways. So I highly recommend against going to the movie. It's certainly not a date night movie. And you're going to have, if you do go, your emotions really tugged at. I mean, is there anything more emotionally disturbing than the thought of your child being kidnapped and tortured and murdered. And so they really are hitting us where we're most vulnerable, and now 
in a state of emotional distress, in comes the answers to life's biggest questions. It is not the right time to be answering the problem of evil. Today we will look at a passage of Scripture that in a similar fashion puts us in the place of a widow who just lost her only son. It it forces us to question God's goodness or His power or His plan or all of the above. It's absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. It will force us to consider the problem of evil. And it won't be the first time we've had to grapple with this issue in the Bible. And it won't be the last. You run into God's sovereignty over and over and over and over again in the Bible. It's probably the theme that ties the entire Bible together. It's a question that must be answered by every human being. You can't avoid it. Oh, you can ignore it for a while because it's too heavy or too emotionally taxing, but eventually life circumstances will force you into a theological crisis. How can I worship this God who just let this happen to me or to somebody I love? So it's better to explore the issue before the crisis hits, like right now. Or maybe some of you are in that very crisis, and I'm glad you're here this morning, for answers. We are tempted when we are suffering or see someone else suffering to come up with unbiblical answers to just kind of salve the wounds. But if we offer up a false view of God to those who are suffering in an attempt to make God sound more compassionate, more understanding, then what will be left when it comes time to worship and obey this God. Can we really trust our lives to a God who is not sovereign? It's like telling people who've suffered through a terrible experience who are really angry with God that they they need to just forgive God. You're like, oh, that is shocking. Oh, it's done all the time in counseling. Not in this church. Done all the time. And the idea is, look, this person's so distraught that to get them over the hump, just let them get mad at God and say, I'm mad at you, but I forgive you for putting me in this horrible family or this horrible marriage or this horrible situation. And God is big enough. He knows he doesn't need to be forgiven. He he can deal with false accusations because he loves you so much that he wants to get you past your pain. You don't get people past their pain by giving them God who sins and makes mistakes. It's short-sighted at the least. At worst, it's incredibly offensive to God. Incredibly offensive to impugn His character in that way. And I know you're trying to help, but it doesn't help in the long run. How can you trust a God who makes mistakes? Oops, sorry. Sorry about the dysfunctional family I placed you in. Oh, sorry that horrible thing happened to you. I was busy with, you know, bigger things. Wars and famines and whatnot. No, our God is intimately involved in every single aspect of our lives. Nothing catches Him by surprise. It's all according to His plan. And so, to come up with a view of God that is less than what the Bible presents is too high of a cost, even if you're trying to help in the meantime. We'll get to God's sovereignty later. But for now, if this person needs to hear that God's sorry that he let this happen, then so be it. In the same way and for the same reasons, we must be careful to answer the problem of evil in such a way as to not reinvent God in order to soothe our fragile egos. God will be God regardless of what you or I think of Him. Let me say that again. 
God will be God regardless of what you and I think of him. And he has been gracious to reveal himself to us. He didn't need to reveal himself to us. He didn't need to let us in on his private thought life, but he did. He didn't need to send his son to die for us, but he did. And so it's up to us to receive him as he is, trust him as he is, and even delight in him as he is. So let's go back to Luke's gospel and ask some tough questions about God's sovereignty this morning with humble hearts, prepared to receive and not to make any demands on God like the centurion did. We can take the next step in our journey of faith, trusting and delighting in our sovereign God. So here's the story. It's a short one. After healing the centurion, it says soon afterwards, chapter 7, verse 11, he went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large crowd. So picture the scene. Jesus and his disciples, that's not just the 12, all who call themselves uh, disciples, followers of Jesus, and then a crowd on top of that of looky-loos who are excited to see what the next miracle is going to be. So this excited, optimistic, enthusiastic crowd, anxious to see what's going to happen next. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. This poor woman is widowed and now left without family. No one to take care of her. But worse than destitute of money, she's destitute of love and relationship. This is heartbreaking. And she has a crowd with her too. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And they're mourning, and they're weeping, and they're depressed, and they're distressed, and they have questions. How could this happen? And these crowds are about to collide, and something's got to give. Right? You see the scene? I mean, it's like tee it up. The whole scene is set for Jesus to do something big here. Wait, no. Something huge. Something's got to give. You've got a crowd who's super excited and optimistic and a crowd that's depressed. Will the crowd that was following Jesus begin to mourn with the other crowd? Or will the crowd that was mourning begin to be excited like like those old commercials of the guy with the chocolate running into the guy with the peanut butter, right? Something's got to give. In fact, the scene is almost too perfect. And so that's our first question this morning. Did Jesus just happen upon this funeral procession? Was it like, wow, look at this. What a perfect opportunity to raise someone from the dead. Or was the script already written? Was it planned out? Are the odds of these two crowds running into each other in this tiny little town at just the right time because it was Mosaic law to bury the body before sundown. So not like us where we're like, hey, when can everyone meet for a funeral? How about Wednesday? No, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Okay, Saturday at 2, the church is open, call Craig, reserve it. Oh, wait, grandma can't come in from St. Louis, so let's put, no, none of that. It had to happen on this day at this time, right when this crowd that is following Jesus is passing through this obscure town. It's too good to be true. And in fact, skeptics say it is too good to be true. Luke made it up. Because it's not in Mark's gospel and it's not recorded in Matthew's gospel. But Luke's given us way too many details A large crowd, a large crowd, we're in Nain, it was a widow who lost her only son. You could go and ask. Tons of eyewitnesses. You're not going to make up the story and get away with it. Luke wrote way too close to the actual history. Too many people are still alive to corroborate the story. So this is real history, this really happened 
And the Bible is clear that God arranges these things. He providentially arranges human history, providentially, through the real choices and actions of people, God makes it all work out according to his plan and his timing, and it's amazing. It's staggering. It's not like he's a supercomputer. This is beyond supercomputer. This is supernatural. People really struggle with God's providence because we tend to think of God in human terms. Like, how could you pull this off? You can't pull it off. I can't pull it off. This is how powerful God is. If he can bring the entire universe into existence by speaking, making an entire universe out of nothing, he can pull this off. But so many people who affirm God's supernatural power in creation struggle with his providence. No, this is, it's, that's too big. No, he, he can do this. This is the God of the Bible. Isaiah 46, 9, God says through the prophet, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and get this, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's good pleasure. Though we would add here that the Bible says he does not delight in evil and does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. But it's according to his good pleasure, meaning there wasn't like a plan B and plan A didn't work out. So he said, well, okay, I guess I'll settle for this. I didn't know they were going to make these choices. I didn't know it was going to turn out this way, but I will make the best of it. That's not the God of the Bible. An example of his providence we see in John chapter 9. Remember the boy who was born blind and now he's a young adult and the apostles are arguing over why was he born blind? Because in their theology, all suffering is a punishment for sin. So certainly this boy was born blind because somebody sinned. Was it him? Which hardly seems fair. Because he was born blind, the kid didn't even have a chance to live a good life. Or was it his parents who sinned, which also would not be fair, because why should the son be punished for the parents' sins? So they have this conundrum. They only see two options, and Jesus comes in with a third option. He said it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God in his sovereignty arranged for this meeting of Jesus and his apostles to happen upon a man who was born blind. That everyone in the area knew had been born blind and had been born blind and was a beggar and been blind from birth. So this wasn't somebody who just had a little pink eye. This is a great miracle. So is the Bible saying that God purposely made a boy have to go through life with blindness just so at the given moment, at just the right time, Jesus would heal this boy and bring glory to God? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Well, that hardly seems fair. We mutter under our breath. And we're being honest and real this morning, and we should, because no sense in pretending we don't think these thoughts. Why did this boy get healed? Why not this other boy? How, what about all the other blind people? Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this was a specially arranged providential appointment that Jesus would display his glory while he was here on earth. This boy received a great blessing and he did nothing to deserve it. Nor did he deserve the blindness he got. Deserve isn't part of the equation here. 
when it comes to God's sovereignty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death and condemnation. The fact that any of us receive any blessing is all grace. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace, and we wouldn't sing amazing grace. We'd sing amazing reward I earned, which doesn't have the same ring and doesn't really well up the same emotions now, does it? Doesn't cause worship at all. It's just like, yeah, makes sense. I worked hard for it. I got it. I earned it. Let's go home. This isn't a God I would give my life for. This is just a God who works the way the rest of the world works. Tip for tat. The great vending machine God in the sky. I put in my dollar and hit E5 and Skittles should come out. But that's not the God of the Bible. God told Moses, who was complaining that he had a stuttering problem, and how is he going to speak on behalf of God in front of Pharaoh? And God said, is it not I, the Lord, who makes the mute and the deaf and the blind? Rhetorical question, the answer is yes. God makes disabilities. God makes no mistakes. He makes every single member of his creation exactly the way he wants them to be for a greater purpose that we don't always fully understand, but we need to accept. So, what's going to happen? Well, passage says, when the Lord saw her, the, the mother, he felt compassion for her. Isn't that beautiful? He felt compassion for her. And said to her, do not weep. Which would be a horrible thing to tell someone unless you were about to raise their son from the dead. Which is exactly what Jesus does. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. By the way, it was forbidden in Mosaic law to, to do what he just did. It would result in extreme defilement, but Jesus is sovereign even over the Mosaic law. I, I'll touch this coffin. It won't defile me. He can't be defiled. He's God. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. How beautiful. I, I don't know if he like carried him and handed him or, or just presented him or anyway it's a beautiful scene and notice jesus spoke the man back to life in the same way that jesus spoke the universe into existence in the same way that jesus breathed life into man in the same way the scriptures say that all Scripture is God-breathed. Theos noustos, God-breathed. He spoke life back into this man. And so, compassion certainly is the answer to our question, why did Jesus raise this man from the dead? But it's more than compassion, it's compassion with a greater purpose. What's the greater purpose? Well, look how the crowd responded. Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Not since Elijah and Elisha has anyone been raised from the dead like this. John the Baptist was a great prophet, but he didn't raise anyone from the dead. Oh, the irony of their statement. God has visited his people yeah, more than you know. He's, he's right there. This isn't just a prophet. He's the prophet the Bible spoke of. The Messiah. The son of the living God. Truly, God has visited his people. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And the, this report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. Here's Jesus teaching things no one has ever taught before. And he's backing it up with his 
miracles. He has authority to back up every word that he has preached. So, the whole scene was arranged by the Trinity before time began so that Jesus would land at just the right spot at just the right time and perform this miracle for God's good pleasure. That's a God you could worship. That's a God you can be in awe of. I mean, what the Patriots pulled off last week was incredible, but don't worship Tom Brady or Bill Belichick. That seemed impossible. It was just improbable. This was impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And only with God are all things possible. We don't know the full extent of God's plans and his unfathomable wisdom. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, something very peculiar is recorded for us in Scripture that happens to be one of Nathan's favorite verses. And so I'm going to preach it just for you. And so the sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he went running right away. No, that's not what it says. It says, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? In fact, it's so shocking that the NIV interpreters changed the word so to yet because it made more sense to them. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Yet makes Jesus sound strange. So makes Jesus sound sovereign. Which do you think it is? He waited two days so his friend would die. So that he could bless his friends by raising Lazarus from the dead. And they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, Mary and Martha say, you're the resurrection and the life. Lord, I believe. Well, that seems mean to let his friend die. No, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He had compassion. He loved Lazarus. Jesus hates death. It's not the way things should be. The wages of sin are death. Death came into the world because of rebellion. But the question then becomes, if God is a God of compassion and power, and he could raise this man, and he could raise Lazarus, why didn't he raise more people? And right, we would say, well, if I was God, I'd just raise everybody. Because that, that would be really loving, and that would bring the most amount of glory to God. If raising one man brought him glory, then raise everybody. But there's only nine recorded resurrections in the Bible besides Jesus. Is that shocking to you? You'd assume there's more. Because the resurrection is such a important reality for us as Christians, we assume that there's more resurrections, but there's only nine. Plus, Jesus makes ten. Now, one of the resurrections was when a bunch of dead came out of the graves when Jesus died, so we don't know how many resurrections there were there. But they don't single out who they were by name. But we have Elijah raising the son of the Zarephath widow, Elisha raising the son of the Shunammite woman, And then there's the story of the dead body that falls in Elisha's grave. And when the dead body touches his bones, it comes back to life. We have our story today. We have Lazarus. We have Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. And 
<coughs> Eutychus was raised by Paul. And that's it. That's recorded. Jesus may have raised other people. In fact, he, we'll see next week, he tells John the Baptist, the dead are being raised. We don't know if that's a plural, the dead. But the point is, why does God raise some and not others? It starts getting at the heart of the problem of evil. It'd almost be better if he didn't raise anyone, right? Because either everyone gets raised or no one gets raised. That's the current culture we're living in. That's called egalitarianism. Everything has to be equal. Now, let's think through this, though. If everyone was getting raised, it wouldn't be very miraculous when someone got raised. It would lose its shock value. And the whole point was for Jesus to do something supernatural so we would believe his testimony. That he is the Son of God and that he has the power of life and death. And all nine plus of these people who were raised did what later? They died. So that's not going to get God off the hook. He could raise everyone. We're just all going to die again. Maybe it's actually more cruel or insensitive to let someone go through death, bring them back, and then they know they're going to have to go through death again. Dying's bad enough. Making someone die twice. The question starts to get at the human tendency to judge circumstances as right or wrong. And we're supposed to do this. We're moral agents. We're moral beings. We're supposed to discern between right and wrong, but we're supposed to discern based on God's revelation. We're not supposed to use our own moral standard to judge. Because at the end of the day, we end up doing this. Well, if I was God, I would do it like this. So what, what are you saying? You're saying you would do it better than God. That maybe he's not all loving. Or maybe he's not all wise. And that is why the problem of evil is such an important topic. It gets at the heart of God's character. And so here's the short answer. God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants. And that's the right response. Thank you. Amen. There ought to be one person in the universe who actually can do whatever he wants. And it's not me, and it's not you. I'd like it to be me in my fallenness. But the sanctified me realizes how utterly stupid that would be. I would make a horrible God. So why do I keep trying to play God all the time? And why do you keep trying to play God all the time? It's part of our fallenness. It's why we cry out for mercy. This is probably the one thing more than anything that we need forgiveness for. When God revealed himself to Moses and he hid, them, hid him in the cleft of the rock and he said, my glory will pass by you. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord. Lord's in all caps, Yahweh, I am. Gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Let that sink in. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. It's his choice. You can't demand grace and compassion from God. It's his prerogative to determine 
on whom he will have compassion and what that compassion will look like. And you know that if you are saved and you're in Christ, that nothing could separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And whatever is coming to pass in your life is a form of God's compassion on you. Even though it may not be what you would call compassion. If it's causing you to let go of your idols, it's compassion. If it's causing you to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, it's compassion. If it's the only thing that will teach you to be patient and trust the Lord, then it is compassionate. Maybe everything going exactly the way you want it to go and no pain and suffering in your life would be the worst possible thing you could ever have. And so question number four then, is this fair or right? That's what it comes down to. And there are many Christians who believe this is not fair or right, so we must reinvent God or reformulate Him in such a way that He is just. And that's a theodicy. If God is all-powerful, good, and loving, then why is there so much evil and suffering? In other words... It doesn't seem fair or right that so many people have to suffer under so much evil in the world. In other words, if I were God, I would stop all evil from happening. Because that is the right thing to do, the good thing, and the loving thing. The atheist just says, well, there's no God, everything's just random chance. And the deist says, well, there is a God, but he just wound up his universe and he's just letting it run. And still, it's random chance, but according to the laws of the universe God has set up. So, you can increase your odds of avoiding suffering if you try to live according to God's laws and commands. Guidelines, really, for the deist. That's why the deist Thomas Jefferson cut out all the supernatural claims in the Bible and made his own Bible. He was a child of the Enlightenment. But the theist, us, we, we can't settle for these options. We say that God is intimately involved in the affairs of our life, every single aspect of our life. So, how do we reconcile suffering with God's sovereignty? This idea of theodicy... John MacArthur says, is like trying to save God from his own bad press. Trying to save God from his own bad press. He wrote the newspaper article about himself, and now we're embarrassed by it. And so we've got to save God from his own self-revelation. And yet Paul says that the answer is that God doesn't need to be justified. God doesn't need us to justify Him. We need to be justified. Romans 9.14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Emphatic. Don't even think it. Don't even say it. Don't even entertain the thought that there might be injustice with God. Who, who are you? How dare you to accuse God of injustice? But we do it in our moment of pain and suffering. It's common to humanity. You, you get anyone in the right situation where there's enough pain and suffering and you will question the goodness of God. Young people here are like, no, I would never do that. A, you've already done that. Because the Bible says you do it every day. So you're already questioning God's wisdom. But B, nothing bad enough has happened in your life yet. Just wait. Your day is coming. And I don't mean to ruin your Sunday. But you need to be prepared for that day. Because you're in your emotional distress, you'll throw everything you learned in Sunday school right out the window.
Paul says, there is no injustice with God. And then he quotes the same verse we just looked at. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You need to know that the problem of evil and theodicy is at the heart of all Arminianism. And we throw those words around, Arminians versus Calvinists. And, and, you know, some of you avoid the whole debate and others of you revel in the debate. And you've watched every James White YouTube video you can get your hands on. And you love to argue Arminianism and Calvinism. And others are like, I wish we'd never talk about this topic in church at all. And yet, the only reason there is this topic is because of God's sovereignty and suffering in the world. And these issues aren't going away. So Arminianism was a system devised by Jacob Arminius and propagated by followers, and there's many iterations of it. And I'll introduce a couple of them to you. Because the idea is, if God is all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, then why is there evil in the world? So, maybe if we tinker with some of those statements, we can get God off the hook. Maybe he's not all-knowing. Maybe he didn't know this tragedy was going to happen to you. Maybe he didn't know that the little girl was going to get kidnapped. And that would somehow let God off the hook. And that's what open theism teaches. The future is open. God doesn't know the future. They say. He's learning as things happen. And he's a really good guesser because he's really smart. And so he talks in the Bible about what's going to happen in the future with confidence that it will happen only because he's really, really, really sure it's going to happen. And they think this is a better version of the God that we've been taught because, wow, isn't that amazing? Here's a God who's so big that he's a God who risks. He's daring. And so they strip God of his omniscience to try to save him from being at fault for making something happen that is uncomfortable for us. Like the open theists, the process theologians are saying, not only does God not know the future, but God is in process. He's growing. He's learning. He's evolving with history. So you'll hear them say, hey, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. History's moving in a direction and God's moving with history and you want to be where God is when he gets there, right? Well, where is that place? I don't know. God doesn't even know yet. But you want to be there when, when he gets there. And so the process theologians actually talk about the future as if they know it better than God knows it. So God is only reacting to events. And so he becomes like your great therapist in the sky. And Nathan's and I have taught a lot about the therapeutic gospel And when something horrible happens to you, it's not because God ordained it. It just happened, and he comes alongside you and says, I am so sorry about this. Oh, that is terrible. I wish there was something I could have done about it, but I I didn't see it coming. This doesn't let God off the hook. Because they'll still say God created the world, and he created it in this way, and he decided to either strip himself of the power of knowing the future or he just can't know the future. So it doesn't get him off the hook because you'd have to ask the question, then why did you create a universe knowing something like this would ha- might happen? It's not worth the risk. It doesn't suddenly get God off the hook. Actually, it makes him look unwise for creating this kind of creation with this much potential for suffering. The most classical form of 
this classical Arminianism starts with, well, I don't want to strip God of being all-loving. And I don't want to strip God of being all-powerful. But I don't want to strip God of not knowing the future. So we'll say that God's highest attribute is love, and He wants you to love Him back authentically, and the only way we can love God authentically is if we could choose to not love Him. So you hear theologians say, if He programmed us to love Him, we would be robots and that wouldn't be true love. And you don't want your kids loving you because you make them love them. You want them to just love you for who you are. And there's some merit to that, but the Bible doesn't teach that directly, that that is why there's evil in the world. And so, if people choose not to love God, then God is just in condemning them and punishing them. So it gets God off the hook for having to punish people in hell. Only one problem with that. The Bible clearly teaches what? That no one chooses God, no, not one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. And no one seeks after God. And by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift from God. Even the faith is a gift from God. Nobody would choose God on their own. So that doesn't get God off the hook. So what does God have to say about all these attempts to save him from his own reputation? He says in Romans 9.19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Watch it. Careful now, questioning God's motives. Questioning his goodness questioning his sovereignty. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Can a child say to his father and mother, why did you conceive me? Can we say to our God, why did you create me this way and put me in this world the way that it is? You can, in humility, say, God, I'm really struggling with the way you have made me, and I'm really struggling with the way the world is, and I'm really struggling with the life that I'm living. But you can't question him in such a way that it puts him on the stand, and he has to answer as if you would have made a better creation than God would have. So then what should be our response to God's providence and sovereignty? With Paul, we should say this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is God. Stop trying to change him into a slightly better version of yourself. He is not you. He is not me. He is otherly. He is perfect. Be in awe of him. Worship him. Adore him. Love him. Trust him. Obey him. But don't think for a second that changing him is going to solve the problem of evil in your mind. We'll speak more on this in coming Sundays. Father, thank you for being God and not a God we would ever invent. Help us to lean on this truth and lean into it and accept it and embrace it and revel in it and proclaim it We don't want a God who doesn't know the future. We don't want a God that's not in control. We want a God 
who's exactly the God we see in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for being that God for us in spite of in spite of our doubts. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.